I'm with Perry Maddox. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Uh, great to be with you today. So you're the CEO of Restless Development. Um, do you want to start just by explaining to people who've not come across Restless Development before, like um, who they are, what they do? Restless Development, we are all about young leaders. And, and what we do is we work with young leaders from around the world to tackle the problems that they, they, they think are most important, whether that's getting a job or kind of taking care of their families or, or playing a role in, in how their countries and communities work. Uh, we work with young people to kind of make change happen. And most of that's volunteer powered. We work with about, you know, 8,000 volunteers around the world and, you know, 1,600 youth organizations out there to help them do do that even better. So whether or not it's the individual young leader and volunteer, kind of a rural community uh, getting it done or kind of young leaders coming together to, to shape change in the world. It's all about that kind of notion of tapping into uh, youth to, to, to make the world a better place. Restless Development used to have another name, SPW, Student Partnerships Worldwide, which is which is how I first came across the organization and and, um, and how we connected. And um, that was because I went to Uganda and volunteered with with Restless myself when I was um, in my younger days, and it was called SPW um, out in Uganda. So I guess the first question I want to just ask you about that, I, I had an incredible experience with that. And that must be a big part of just what makes the organization special, that people come back from these experiences and then tell these incredible stories about the leaders they've met in other countries and the work that they've been doing, right? I think what Russell does really well and what makes us kind of who we are is is you've got young people out there leading change, volunteering, you know, running programs, working in schools, you know, working with farmers, all, all that good stuff. Um, but by virtue of their age, they're also growing and learning at the same time. And so you've got mm. kind of two change processes going on at the same time. And and I think, you know, one of the things we really try to do is, is push the, the notion of leadership. It's got nothing to do with the title. You don't need to be a CEO. I mean, I, CEO is the least important person in the organization. I, I think those volunteers out there leading leading our work are, are the ones who are truly leading. And um, and so you get this kind of lovely dual benefit of kind of both creating impact, but also kind of unleashing, supporting, encouraging another generation of leaders. And and yeah, a lot of them come back to work with us. And really excitingly, we run into them a lot of times. You'll, you'll walk into a ministry or government office somewhere and you'll find a, a former volunteer just sitting there, you know, making decisions. Mm-hmm. And and so that that's, that's uh, there's a lot of joy in that for sure. And a lot of my early career was also in in enabling young people as part of other organizations and stuff and, you know, helping young people to volunteer and make change. And I, I think I often used to say, um, you know, when I was talking about that work to funders or other stakeholders or whatever, is that there's something there's something really magical about change being led by young people, because often young people just they don't have the trappings of needing everything to be done with, you know, fancy Jeeps and four by fours. And also they're just, you know, and I often think about myself um, here when I was younger, it's like you're you're naive enough to believe that you can change the world. And so you do, as yeah. opposed to being kind of, you know, bogged down in bureaucracy and, and systems and all that kind of stuff. And then you don't. So do you find that the, I guess the downside of that is sometimes that, you know, do the established funders and you know governments in the countries you're in do they take you a bit less seriously because there's less older people in the room and is that is that a problem for you as an organization it it is a problem with more traditional organizations or institutions or maybe more just traditional power holders and individuals i you know i think we have to work doubly hard to to prove impact and to show that young people don't just bring the kind of fire the energy and the passion but they they, they create better results, you know, and, yeah. and it, it's not across everything. Young people aren't expert at everything, but the, the kind of areas where we have them working, reaching out to fellow youth around sensitive topics, mobilizing and engaging communities. Why? Because they're the majority of almost every community in the developing world. It's under 30 years of age. And so you're, you're not just kind of, it's not just like a nice to have. This is a value addition. And, yeah. and, and what we often say to those partners, and, and, you know, it doesn't really matter who we're meeting. I kind of say, how can we help? Because half the community you're trying to serve with this water program or this education program, or this health program, or this business, half of the unemployed people are young. Um, half of the entrepreneurs are young. Half of the, you know, the sex workers are young. Half of the health workers are young. Um, what we're offering you here is, is kind of, uh, you know, unfettered access to your end user um, to make your work better. Um, and so, you know, we have to make that case with a lot of people. But I, I will say it's changing. Ten years ago, we yeah. could barely get in the room. Nowadays, we can get young people in the room. The question is how meaningfully it the engagement's going to be. And so you do see that kind of slowly changing. Um, but yeah, there's some old folks out there who just go, no, they're, they're young and they don't know. 
And you can either choose to engage with that and, and, and challenge it, or we can go to people who are actually excited about youth. Because there's a whole group of funders and partners out there who see what young people bring and they want to work directly into that. And and so I, I think it's kind of a, a little bit of a judgment call. And, and, and do you play the hot hands and run with people who already know what youth is? Or, or do you take the long kind of burn and, and convince these big organizations and governments of whole countries that they need to engage youth the right way? And it's a little bit of both. But um, yeah, I, I know that feeling of trying to make the case for youth. And you've been the CEO now for a couple of years. Can you just tell us a bit more about your journey? So how did you... How did you get into the whole area of, of, of working in international development? How did you get into Restless? Um, what, was that, what was that route through to becoming the CEO? Well, I never set out to do it, um, and, I, and I'm glad I didn't. I came into this field of kind of international development, of community development through Spanish. I love speaking Spanish, and, and I was studying Spanish, and, and I spent a fair bit of time overseas in Central America. I'm from the U.S., and um, just language-wise, and, and kind of came across this field of community development and international development and, and fell in love with it. it. It made sense to me. It kind of spoke to the social justice kind of uh, that, that my parents had instilled in me and, and I enjoyed it. And to be really honest, it, at a very personal transactional level, I was happy doing it, you know, and, and, mm. and it was a bit yeah. selfish, but I enjoyed this work. And I, and I, and so the first kind of 10 years of my career were in, were in Latin America. Um, and, you know, really excitingly, I, I kind of hit a glass ceiling there because there's so much talent, homegrown talent in, in Latin America with, with the education systems as, as they are that you don't need a lot of expats in, in the mix. And, and actually, you shouldn't have them. So, you know, mm. I, I had that kind of ground grassroots experience and learned. And um, I, I actually got downsized. Uh, I, I got downsized out of a job with the Peace Corps in 2008 with that financial crash. They had to cut back on management and I was okay. the, the low one on the, on, on the totem pole there. And so I got cut. And about that time came across this organization, SPW, that was looking for young leaders and, you know, the stars aligned. Um, and so I, I went to Uganda and, and started there. Um, and, you know, in, in many ways, it was the best of, of, of Peace Corps, of kind of volunteer-led change, community-led change, but even better because these were young Ugandans in their own communities, in their own country, mm. leading that change with a couple of foreign folks, uh, which were nice kind of catalysts and, and good relationship. And and we went from there. And, you know, I I think... What has to happen in, in, in international development is you have to work yourself out of a job, especially if you're a foreigner mm. like me. It's just morally wrong uh, to be on the front line delivering programs for your whole career when that could be done by community members who know that community way better. you know. And so as I became the director of our country program in, in Uganda, I really began to understand my value addition was much more in the kind of the admin, the leadership space, making the organization work, you know, convincing the funders and the, and the partners and to enable the work so that the 250 kind of staff and, and volunteers could go off and, and do their work better. And, and kind of stepping back from the front line to, to enable that was really fun. And I, I kind of fell in love with building organizations and fell in love with yeah. kind of efficiency and, and all kinds of nerdy, nerdy things like that. And how do you make this work? Um, and so I, I spent about six years as our COO, kind of helping the global agency to perform and, and do a period of rapid growth where we kind of, I think we tripled in size in about five years. And so it was a fun time wow. to be a, chief operating officer trying to hold all that together um and yeah then was lucky enough to get chosen to, to be the ceo uh three and a half years ago and yeah, continue to do that and, and and try to walk that line of how do i both represent and, and and use my role to bring in more resource and attention for youth without crowding out youth um and how do i make sure that youth voice is always front and center and if you, if you need the ceo you can roll me out right but really i'm yeah. much more interested in making sure that we're, we're serving young people as best we can i wanted to just Pick up on a couple of things there, and um, and shift the focus to to Black Lives Matter. And mm. I read a couple of really interesting things that you wrote about that. But it it sort of strikes me that one of the things that could be difficult about that whole agenda that you were talking about there of of how do I get out of the way and and give that leadership role to people in the country and you know and and sort of put yourself out of a job. Obviously the I guess the the kind of um, spiritual home of of where this whole uh, organization came from was a very posh private school in in yeah. London, yeah. Um, and the headmaster at the time having the idea to do it. And um, um, I remember I I actually I actually knew um, Jim Cogan, who was the the original founder of of SPW, a little bit because I was on a board with him. And I remember this line in his uh, after he died, uh, there was. Uh, this eulogy about him uh, in an email that went around and one of the lines in this email was um that he would give all of these these you know sort of posh uh 
private school kids in London these envelopes and say, give this to Gabriel Amori. He's a man who will meet you in Kampala. And then these people would just get on the plane and, and sort of go to Kampala. But there's something very, you know, there's something very colonial um, about that. And, and, you know, it feels uncomfortably so in the context of Black Lives Matter. But your response to that just feels like it's been very thoughtful in leading the organisation you know, through its response to Black Lives Matter and how you make change within the organisation. So I'd just love you to tell that story because like, from what I've read um, and and the sort of blog post, post documenting it uh, about it, it feels just a lot more um, thoughtful and action orientated than I've seen from actually from a lot of people in the corporate space. I'm glad to hear that. I, I, I think in, in many ways, um, the, the kind of changes that we've led and, and, and the learning we're still doing and, and, and aspire to do, it, it, colonial though our kind of roots were in terms of geography and where it came out of Westminster School, like in the shadow of Westminster Abbey, you know, I mean, how, how much more, you know, kind of how much more can you get there? Um, the spirit of Restless was always pretty power shifting, pretty, pretty power restorative. I mean, to be honest, pretty, pretty kind of middle finger to, to, to the system. And, mm. you know, I, from what I understand about Jim, he was, he was a rebel. And, you know, it, it was a rebellious radical idea in 1985 to say, let's get young people to lead change. And, yeah. you know, in the 20 years before I kind of joined, I, you know, the, we had begun to really kind of understand that those young people should be both some from overseas, but, you know, 90, 95% from their home countries. And, and, and so I joined that organization. That's why I joined. I mean, I love Peace Corps, but I, I don't think you should have to import all of those kind of volunteers. Um, and so I found this organization that was the best of volunteering, but also kind of nationally grounded and therefore more likely to be legitimate and sustainable. Um, so that in many ways that I think the, the ethos was there. Um, but it was an ethos from the eighties and that, that yeah. obviously, you know, needs to change. And, 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 you know, I had a really funny thing happen and not, not funny. It was quite striking. Um, when I applied to be the, the CEO and I got the job and, um, because I had access to all the files, like they, somebody had left a file on the server. They'd run a consultation with all of our global staff asking, you know, the recruiters had run a consultation with all of our global staff asking, what do you want to see in the next CEO? Um, and because it was anonymized, I don't think I broke any confidentiality in reading that document, but I was like, I want to know. Right. I want to know what my people want from me. And it, and it was brilliant, you know, and I, and I just scanned through it and there's a couple hundred responses in there and they're really, really helpful in terms of, you know, one of the big things that came out was like humility and, and all these kind of different things. And I was like, brilliant. You know, I've got a, you know, it's really helpful as a, as a new leader, but there was one line in there and it was just one line out of 300 people that said, not another white, straight, Western man. Mm. Right. Because I've, I've followed too. Um, and. And I, I got the job and this was like week one and I just read it and it was like somebody hit me in the chest with a sledgehammer. It was just massively deflating for a microsecond. And then you go, oh, no, I totally agree with that. <laughs> you know, and it was one of those things where it was like intellectually, I totally agree with it. And personally, it was like, yeah. oh, and, and you go, all right, so what do I do with that? You know, and, and, and what do you do with that? I mean, it was just so lucky to have had that moment. I, I would hope that if we ran that consultation this year, we'd probably have about 200 people saying the same thing. Um, but it, it kind of set out and to go, right. So how do I use the CEO role to, to, to address those in, imbalances of power, those injustices that, that, and the way that kind of, you know, racist uh, systems manifest themselves within our organization because they manifest within every organization. And it was quite freeing in a way. And, and I hate to say it, it's almost easier as a white man to lead this charge because you've got the kind of platform. Um, and you can, mm. you can speak truth to other white men and say, and it's not just white men, but like, but let's be honest, there's a lot of folks that need to be moved on that kind of agenda. And so I, I think the kind of the roots and shoots that were already there in Restless, somebody, you know, I don't know who wrote that comment. Somebody writing that comment was enough of a little fire that was lit. And we, we kind of came in and we built a new strategy. And the whole strategy was about distributing power across our global agency and not having a headquarters, but convening all of our directors globally once a year as a mobile headquarters where we made decisions in full consensus. And so like a lot of those pieces were in motion and we were working on them. And then, you know, Black Lives Matters really accelerated after George Floyd was, was murdered. And, you know, none of it felt foreign to us. But it was clear that we needed to step up our game. And I think the, the big kind of change for us was understanding how power manifests itself. And, you know, and, and yeah. to understand that it's not enough just to say, well, racism is bad. Of course, racism is bad. We all believe that. Uh, you wouldn't, hopefully you wouldn't be working at Russell's if you don't. But to understand that actually systemic racism manifests itself in like every bit of our work. 
um, and to hold that mirror up and go, oh, okay, this is a much bigger job. And it's not about just, you know, equal opportunities and, and, and building diverse teams. It's about fundamentally looking in the mirror and going, where does power sit in this relationship? And is it because of race? Um, and then you, of course, you wide that out to all, all kind of gender and sexuality and, and, and everything. And it was, it just, it resonated deep down. And, and I had a couple, I had an interesting recruitment at the time. Uh, where I was recruiting for a, a new director and we just started asking about an interviews and, and it turned out one of the candidates was so excited and so skilled in this area. And he, he comes from a finance background. You know, we're hiring a finance director who started talking about this in the interview and we go, Oh, we've mm. got something good here, you know? And, um, we trusted a couple of our directors just to lead that process. And, and, and what they said we need to do is let's do a listening exercise. So they did one listening and they said, Oh, we need to do a lot more. You know, we, we, we listened out there and listened to all of our staff, started to talk about this stuff. And the more we talked about it, the more our staff opened up. And we just, we spent a long time asking and listening. And, and how does this manifest? And because Perry Maddox, white male CEO, is not going to see it. Not not across the global agency. But if you're asking all of your drivers and your interns and your receptionists and your program coordinators around the world, you start to put all that together and you get a really compelling map of what we're doing well and what we're not. And I think, you know, that, that just built off the, the existing values and allowed us to kind of build an anti-racism strategy that made sense to our people. So that kind of happened. And, and my approach as a CEO is to empower and enable that, but to get out of the way and yeah. look, trust that process so that I could actually make a couple other changes that were really easy to make, but almost you needed a top-down executive decision. And, and so what I started to do in the meantime was just to start to shift structure. I was looking at our senior leadership team and we have, We've had great senior leaders over the years, um, but they've been disproportionately from London and as a result, less representative of our global kind of diversity. Uh, we work in 10 countries around Africa and Asia. And, and I was looking at why, and it was because all of our directors were making the move from the kind of number two function in our London office. So our kind of finance number two was jumping into that finance director. Our fundraiser was okay. next up. Yeah. Rather than our country directors, who in many ways are more executive and much more like me, they weren't mm. coming through that. And, and so we just started to make some structural changes. And I looked at it and I said, well, why do these roles need to sit in London? You know, there's, there's no point. They don't need to sit in London anymore. Um, and if I've built my career up to a point where I'm ready to have a run as CEO job, I've probably got a family or I've got some ties. And, and what, I'm going to uproot from India to come to London to do this job? Or I'm going to leave Zimbabwe to do that? I mean, we, there were just some stupid barriers that are easy to fix. And so I started to kind of put my leadership team across uh, the world and, and at the same time, we had a really interesting kind of feedback from the listening exercises. It said, why are we paying different salaries for foreign staff versus national? Now, we had always done that. And most people do that in the field. And the reason we did it is because it's a higher cost if you're working overseas. Yeah. Fine. But the problem was most of those staff tended to be white. And right. so it was actually a manifestation of kind of systemic racism when what we thought was actually a pretty fair pay approach. And so we, you know, as a CEO, I just said, level it. Let's just level it. And we went out to our directors wow, to make cool. sure they're happy. And we just leveled it and we just did it, you know? And, and I think that's the, that's been the kind of freeing thing. Almost as a, as the leader, the executive, you can take more chances. And mm. so while our listening process was going and doing the real deep change that's going to matter, I could also make some kind of quick changes and go, we're going to put three young leaders on our, le our leadership team. And I, I kind of don't care what your, what your opinion is. I want them. And so we're, <laughs> you know, that, and, and like, if it doesn't work, it's on me and I'll be fired. Yeah. We're level the yeah. salary structures. And if it's on me, we'll be fired. I, I'll, I'll take the heat. Um, and so I, I think, you know, kind of understanding like what my lane is, uh, as it were, and, and, and looking and going, where can I push a button that others might not need to, or might, mm. might not be able to, and where can I accelerate something that isn't that that's how we've done it, you know, and, and, and we've tried to be humble because we don't know it all we're learning, you know, and, um, we make mistakes with it all the time. And, you know, and, and the third one, which is, is more sensitive is, it's just making the personnel decisions when somebody needs to go. Because yeah. they're not on board, they're not yeah. on board with that. And, and Russ is full of progressive, lovely people, but that doesn't mean everybody's ready or right for where we're going to go next. And, and, you know, that's the part that we don't talk about too much in public, anybody, but you, sometimes you got to get people off the bus. Um, and mm. that needs to be done. And I think, again, that's where you can kind of stick your executive neck out a little bit and, and say, I'll take this risk, not, not, not force that on your HR teams or your staff to kind of do. And, I don't know. It seems to be working for us. Um, we're going to stay humble and hungry on it. Um, but it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's been a good journey. And I'm, I'm really proud of our agency for not the progress, but the steps we've put in. And I'm, I'm excited to see where it'll take us, you know? I suppose the obvious next question, which maybe you started to answer there with the comment at the end about sometimes you have to stick your neck out and, you know, allow people to get off the bus. I'm just wondering, obviously, 
obviously giving up power and privilege can be a difficult thing, you know, even when you have that motivation to do that. So I'm just wondering if you came across instances where maybe it wasn't you, but maybe it was other people, but, you know, felt uncomfortable in ceding the power or ceding the space to to allow those things to grow into it. Were there, were there uncomfortable moments, even though you knew you were doing the right thing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the whole thing's uncomfortable, right? Because if if you really look at it, you, you can't you can't just address, you know, injustice as an acute problem. You know, it, it, this is not manifested because Brussels is a fundamentally racist organization. It's manifested because the world's fundamentally systemically racist, right? And mm. and therefore it's in in into our world. And and like even saying that out loud, that's awkward for a lot of people. They don't like it. Are you calling me racist? No, I'm not. You know, and that's not mm. what I'm saying. But like you know, but you have to hold that silence too and not be too yeah. easy with them and, and, and let them, and let them kind of think what they want to think. And you have to be willing to challenge. And I don't know, again, I, I was quite blessed with Russell's kind of core DNA. I mean, that's Jim, Jim found an organization to challenge the way things were done. Um, we are, you know, we, we believe strongly in the, in the value of, of communities and people in their own countries leading their work. We don't believe in that kind of white guy going overseas to, to solve everything. We believe in global partnership. Right. Partnership mm. is the word there, not kind of uh, top yep. down. And and so I had a lot of a lot of a lot to work with there. But, yeah, we've had some tough conversations and, and you know, a lot of them have, have led to kind of, well, maybe this is time to move on. Not not that yeah. you don't believe this, but it's just personally too hard for you or actually, hey, it's hey, mate, you're a liability now because you're behind the curve. You know, yeah. and, and, yeah. and now we need to have a more direct conversation because yeah. you can't you can't you can't not come with it. We don't, we don't demand perfection here at all, right? We're all learning. Gosh, I mean, I, I would hate to know what my report card says on, the, you know, on, on what I know here. But at the same time, you, you also have to put your money where your mouth is and, and, and take some chances. And, you know, it's in a way, it's easier in development, I, I think, probably than in business and in it, uh, and, and nonprofits because we're held to that standard by our funders. We're held to that standard by our communities. We're held to that standard by our staff. And, and you know, you, you cannot work legitimately if you're not led by the people you're working for, you know, and, and, and I think in many ways we can see a strategic value addition that comes out of it. It's not like a nice to have, we're doing this because we need to reduce our carbon front print or we're doing this because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, we're doing this because it adds value to our work. We get better ideas. We get better insight. We get better quality. And, and, you know, if somebody just can't put all those pieces together, well, you know, let's shake hands and, and it's, it's time, it's time to part ways. And there's other great organizations out there that you might have a better home with. And, yeah. um, and I, you know, the first couple were hard. They're always going to be hard, but it, it's interesting. You start to do that. You build a muscle memory and, you, and you're just reinforcing yourself that this is my gig. You know, like, why do I, why does the CEO get paid more? Is it because I'm more intelligent? No, it's, it's to do that stuff and, and to take those chances and, and, and to put your money where your mouth is in and, and protect yeah. the, the mission, right? Absolutely. And what's inspiring to me with that is just, I can just hear the commitment to that just in the way you speak about it and not wanting to shirk those difficult responsibilities as part of that, I just think is really inspiring. Maybe leads me on to thinking about empathy. I read a really good piece that you wrote on your blog about empathetic leadership. And you were saying that you you felt that empathetic leadership was important, but it was also a, a blessing as well as a curse at the same time. I'm kind of a hard on the sleeve guy. I always have been. And uh, my job before, um, really interesting, my job before uh, Restless was a trainer. I was a full-time trainer for Peace Corps volunteers. And so we get them for these 15-week cycles and then send them out to do their work. And and one of the things you learn as a trainer is, is to read the room, right? And, 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 and you're, you know, it's pretty intimate. You're, you're training six to eight people to do some pretty complex mm -hmm. stuff. And, and, and one of the things you, you kind of are taught really on is to watch body language and is somebody engaging or not and how you elicit that without exposing them in the room. You know, they might not be engaging because they're sick that day or, or their mom's not well and they've got something else in their mind. If you go, Hey, Graham, why aren't you talking? Well, you might make them cry, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so that, that kind of, I, I get a master class from uh, my boss. Um, in, in Paraguay, and she, she taught me about the, this kind of element of kind of how do you, how do you feel your way through a room and how do you listen and, and connect with people? And that, that's always, I mean, that's always kind of been my style. I, I think my role here is largely to get the right people in the organization and to make sure that they are supported to, to, to be themselves and to thrive. And yeah, we need to make sure we're all moving in a strategic direction and we need some resourcing, but it's really about setting up teams to, to help people succeed. And, 
if you're going to help people succeed, you got to understand how they're feeling, right? And and you know, and, and so all that was my kind of background. But then we got the pandemic and hit us in the teeth. And not only did we get hit in the teeth, but we lost like 30, 40% of our income last year. It's going to come back, but it's going to come back in a year or two, right? And and mm, that was, you yeah. know, events couldn't run. Uh, corporates, we had seven corporates call in one day to cancel their standing donations and say, we love you, but wow. sorry. Because wow. um, that's the first thing that they needed to do to balance their books. And it tells you where we stand in the world, but it's okay. You know, we just, we had a series of those kind of, you know, kicks in the teeth. And so we had to restructure. And, and again, restructure is not the end of the world, you know, and, and we set out from the start and I said to our, our board, look, we, we're going to have to restructure. And they said, do two things, be quick and be kind, you know, and I thought that was really, really good. And these are HR, a couple of HR pros on there. And they said, be quick and be kind. And, and so that's what I set out to do. And, and we gave more generous terms for people that we had to let go. We did a lot of training. We did a massive amount of consultation, um, to kind of reshape the, the organogram based on what our staff thought. You know, and, and really tried to lead with with my heart, but I, I it wasn't until I kind of snapped <laughs> and, and and barked at, at my team once in, in the final meeting. It was like right there, and at the end, I said like I just kind of misjudged and gave a little bit of advice that wasn't needed. <laughs> Put it like that. It wasn't bad advice, but it was the wrong space, and the, the tone was off. And you know, three months later, in my annual review, my my board chair said, "You want to talk about that?" <laughs> And I said, yeah, you know, and, and we, and we started talking about it and she said, why do you, why do you think? And, and, and it got to the point, she said, you know, you wear your, your heart and your sleeve, but people don't always want that, you know, or, or they want the positive side of that, but they don't necessarily want the negative side of your emotion. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, how do you do that without being inauthentic? You know, it's hard for me to kind of turn that on and off. And, and, and the kind of the, the conclusion I came to was like, step back a little bit, you know, and I think what I'd done is gone and, and just gone, I really want to be empathetic. I really want to practice kind of transformational leadership. And, and so I kind of went to 100 on that dial and, you know, it was coming at the cost of my own well-being because, you know, compassion is like understanding somebody's in pain or struggling and wanting to help. Empathy is actively feeling that emotion with them hmm. as best I understand. And like you start to do that with 60 staff who are at risk of losing their job in a pandemic and an economic downturn. Well, also you're internalizing a whole lot of pain. And, and yeah, that might've made me, better leader in some ways, but actually it didn't. And, you know, I was, I was carrying too much stress and it was, it was self-defeating in a way. And so I, I think the kind of lesson was like empathetic leadership is like any leadership tool, you know, in moderation and, and used, you know, yeah. deployed differently. And there's days where we need to be visionary. We need to sell the big thing. We need to get out there and put on the suit and, and, and go, wow, the you win. And there's days where, you know, that, 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 that leadership skills not needed. And actually what my teams need is me just to sit down and help them kind of plow through some problems and understand efficiencies and, and, and solve. And I, and I think we go through those kind of leadership approaches. We move them, we adapt them situationally. And uh, the big learning was that I, I needed to have done that with empathy because I, I just, I just carried a little bit too much and it came at my personal cost and, yeah. you know, and, and that's all right. You know, it's good learning. Do you think the other thing, so you're, HR people on your board said be quick and be kind when it came to the restructure and do you think sometimes if if you're too empathetic it actually it slows down the decision right so it it actually it's quite difficult to be quick and be kind in a way because if 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 you're fully in the empathy part of that decision making then actually you're thinking you're there's more scenarios to play out you're you're being more thoughtful about it and actually that thought is is getting in the way of action do you think that's maybe the other downside to being too empathetic as a leader it's definitely out there and i've I've read a lot of research on that or, or a lot of kind of thinking and i and i see some of the my teams actually who i've got some really strong empathetic leaders and they they can be they, they can be slow to make these hard decisions or they can kind of avoid them because of the personal impact that the fallout um, I mean, the, the funny thing in, in my case was uh, my board chair sat down and she goes, the first thing people love is that you're super decisive. Uh, you moved mm. on this way quickly. And, and I did because it was just clear to see the tea leaves. And my wife and I have been kind of like following the COVID news since that ship was stuck off of, I can't even remember, Japan or South Korea. And that kind of cruise ship. And we're like, this is really bad. And, and we were kind of mm. like conspiracy theorists. Um, so I kind of already got to the point where this pandemic is going to be multiple years. It's going to be way worse than anybody wants to admit. And and in a funny way, it allowed me to be really decisive in, in, in the, the process. So I was able to be really quick, but, um, 
but the the problem is 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 the kind of emotional collateral that I was accruing the whole way through. Like to know the feelings and still be able to kind of like almost kind of cut the brain off and go, I'm still going to crack on with this yeah. restructure because it's got to be done. It's got to be done for the mission. It's got to be done for young people. It's not, you know, it's just got to happen. So let's just do it. You know, I was able to do that. But I think even the effort of choosing to do that meant that the kind of the cost accruing got even more. Whereas perhaps mm. other people get called on empathetic leadership earlier upstream and, and are slower. I just plowed through the decision, which was fine. Um, but it, but it came back and got me in the end. So I think different yeah. personalities get caught different ways. I mean, I still stand by it. I, I mean, I, I think if you're going to err, I mean, come on, err, err on the side of being kind to your people, err on the side of caring about their feelings. You know, nine times out of 10, that's going to get you happier staff, more productivity, a better impact. Um, and you know, one, one times out of 10, then you need to step back and, and, and look for the traps, whatever they might be. Yeah. It's like salt, salted caramel, right? Yeah. You know, the sweetness, but occasionally that little bit of salt too, a little bit of bite to make decisions and, and do stuff. Yeah. Because I mean, it's one of the things that like, I, it's like the first guy I ever had to fire just to jump around ages ago, like 10 years ago, I, I had to, I had to let a guy go and he just was totally wrong for the job. And, and he came out of the meeting. He was like, so what? And he didn't realize I fired him because I did such a terrible job of communicating because I was trying to be so <laughs> nice and I felt so bad about it. And it was like, right. Okay. You know, like, and, and, and you go, I have a job here and I, my job is, is the mission and it doesn't matter how uncomfortable I am. I've got to serve young people. Mm. Um, and, and you also, what I learned in that one is you, you don't help anybody who's underperforming or struggling or in the wrong role by keeping them. By, by being nice. Yeah. Now, that, now, most of the time you can fix it. You can help somebody grow. But if somebody's just in the wrong place or if they're in the right place, but you simply don't have the money to keep them anymore, yeah. there's no sense of like kind of mincing words and dancing around. Uh, you can, you can express love and kindness and care for those people, but you've got to do what you got to do for the, for the, for the business and the bottom line. So that you, in our case, you can continue to serve people. And I don't know. I don't know if that's like kind of a psychopathic tendency to be able to kind of box that off and just go, I'm going to focus on the thing here and try to be as nice as I can be along the way. Um, but you, you just got to do it. Right. And, and, and I think that I, I think, yeah. you know, drawing it out is one of the cruelest things. And that, that was what I really liked from the board This you know, be quick. And I was like, wow, you know, because if we, if we are indecisive here, well, everyone, those, they're not dumb. Everyone, those staff members knows that we are in, in financial trouble. And what are they going to yeah. do? We're going to make them wait for three months rather than one. That's, I mean, that's the height of cruelty and sensitivity. And, and so I, I, it, it just, it was, it's a really interesting kind of mix. Um, and, and, and understanding that sometimes the, the kindest thing you can do might feel a little bit cruel. Um, yeah. but I, I definitely took my off self care and, and all of that. And I ended up kind of harming others as a result. And that was, that was a big learning too. Yeah. I mean, that, that thing about, you know, be quick and be kind. I'd imagine having been in some similar places, both in my time working in charities and then also running in my own business. That advice is like, it's what you don't want to hear as the CEO, but it's also what you need to hear, isn't it? It's like, oh yeah, yeah shit, it's going to be one of those those periods and stuff. <laughs> but coming back to that, um, you know that that thing about you know you're saying like I'm boxing it off, and is that like a psychopathic thing? Is that unkind? I I don't think so. Um, Brené Brown's got a lovely phrase, which is um, clear is kind, unclear is unkind, and I think there's a there's a real kindness to that that clarity of of saying look this is this is where we're at this is how why it doesn't fit this is why we don't have the money like whatever the situation is mm. you know like you said before that is that is what you're paid the extra money to do right as ceo is is to take on board you know the, those difficult decisions and and make the right calls and be decisive yeah yeah i like that clarity is kind yeah. that's, that's very true yeah clear is kind and unclear is unkind um <laughs> yeah let's Let's talk a little bit um, about productivity and um, and work life balance and and very beyond busy topics. So yeah. um, you are usually based in London. You're now um, for a little while based in the US, um, predominantly because of COVID. And obviously, your leaders having expanded the leadership team of the organisation to be less London centric and and now based all around the world. That must give you a bit of a problem in terms of time zones, right? Just the practicalities of that. So tell us more about what, what that's like to lead a leadership team who ostensibly can't get together in the same room and are all working in presumably different time zones at different times of the day. Well, um, 
I'm reminded of another piece of uh, advice I got from a, a board member ages ago. He, we were talking about um, distributing leadership, but he had made all of his money in offshore. He had made a bunch of money in kind of offshoring some part of the financial services model and uh, working with people in, in different countries to deliver that service at a, a, a lower cost. And, and we're, we're just talking about this as we were starting to distribute leadership. And he said, look, never relocate a team, relocate around a person. Don't relocate your finance function, relocate your finance director because you trust that person. Um, mm. and, he's, and, and it was brutally, it was really, it was really good because normally with organograms, you go, well, let's build the right structure and, and let's be clean and then we'll put the right people in and let's be objective. And actually he's saying, no, like, mate, if you've got a leader that you trust that you know will put three years into this, you know, relocation project, build around them and, 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 and work that relationship as, as the key glue because that's really what's going to matter. And that was like years ago and that stuck with me. And I, and I, that's kind of how we started here. I, we've got a couple new leaders on that, but actually it's, I took what was the best leadership team I'd ever had and, and, and kind of chose the next structure based on that. I mean, it's something that's got four mm. stars. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, what we, the way we lead across Restless is what we call the mobile headquarters. So we don't believe our London team is, is our headquarters. It's just a support office that plays certain functions. We bring together all of our global directors once a year for, um, the conference. And it's, it's, it's where we make all decisions in full consensus. So I'm not the CEO. I don't direct what happens with Restless. I do that in partnership with all of my directors. And, and so we kind of had some DNA stuff that was already going in our favor to be distant. But in the day, I mean, I, it's just, I've gotten brutal about scheduling and, and the calendar is my best friend. And like, I, I, I fundamentally leave our resources, our most constrained asset. And, and so how do you use uh, time as our, our most constrained asset? How do you use that resource? And so, I mean, for me, it kind of works. I'm a morning guy. So I get up early and, and have some calls at six and seven to catch Nepal and India. Um, and then I kind of catch Asia and Europe. And, and by the time they're finished, it's like, it's, it's like noon, right? Mm. And all of a sudden, I've got the rest of the afternoon to do whatever I want. And, yeah. and in a way, it's kind of mechanically like hived off that kind of doing space. You know, 60% of the time, I get those afternoons to do what I need to do. And I'm, I'm actually more productive than ever. Um, whereas, you know, when I was based in London in the same time zone with all of our Africa teams and pretty close to our Asia teams, uh, you know, there was a lot more kind of questions and, and a lot more kind of, uh, time spent on with, with the team. And, and now it's just more focused. Like I've just structured it out. You know, this is, this is your slot. This is when I'm available. I will always be available. If you need help, by all means, let me know. But if not, I'm going to trust you because I know you're a high quality leader. Crack on. Let's talk about outcomes. I'm going to trust you on yeah. all the, the outputs. You, you do the what. Let's talk about the why and, 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 and yay. And, and, and then we check in and do that. And, it's been a great exercise in trust. Now we've just onboarded three new leaders into the team. Um, and I don't know them as well personally. And so like step one is get to know them and, and figure mm -hmm. out the relationship and, and give them that kind of comfort that they would have had from like going for a cup of coffee and, or, or a beer after work, or whatever it might be. And, and I just generate that. Um, but I, it's really effective for me. I basically have like carved out my day where I've got productivity like built in to create as opposed to just service. And, and then what we do in, in, in the, but our all global meetings, now we can't do it, you know, all together. Mm -hmm. um, so what we ended up yep. doing is, is cutting it down. And instead of having like a two-week in-person set piece where we do everything, we're doing four short meetings a week, uh, a year. You know, and so we're getting all those directors together for a couple days. Um, but they're not even whole days. They're like four-hour slots. So that our U.S. Right. East Coast people can get up and join at seven and India and Nepal, it's not too late to their night. And so we're just doing less and, you know, giving people permission to do less, I think is like my key job um, mm. just to say, you can dial that back. It's okay. And, and yeah. let me kind of do that conducting. And, and so, and what we found is we cover just as much ground. Of course we do. Of course we do. You, yeah. you kind of, you feel the briefcase, don't you? So do you feel like, um, is, is, is part of you keen to not move back to London so that you preserve this nice, you know, sort of US time zone, having the afternoons to yourself kind of time? Like that must be a temptation there. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> definitely. Um, I mean, what, what I used to do in London was um, beforehand, I I, uh, I had one work at home day. It was just like my Thursday work at home day. And I just, I mean, I love a Thursday work at home day because of like, it's complete mental manipulation. I'm like, look, I've got a three day week and then I get to work at home, which is, yeah, I don't have to commute. Mm -hmm. I can have like, you know, yeah. And then it's just Friday. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and like all my other team kind of does a Wednesday work at home. I'm like, no, 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 y'all, you, you know, like I, so I always had that, right? And still have that. Um, but what I also put in my calendars, I just put it down one day. I was like, let me work Wednesdays. And it, my mm. calendar just reads, I will not take a meeting on Wednesday. 
And now I'll take a meeting during the day if you need help, if you need a call, if there's an emergency or, if a, you know, if a funder wants to meet, of course. Right. But uh, internal normal meetings, I've just said no. Let's, yeah. just wet, let's just wedge those into kind of Monday, Tuesday, Friday. And like if there's not enough space, let's ask a question about why there's not enough space. I should mm. be able to have a day where I, I, I don't meet people because you need where's my value addition? You know, you need me kind of, and, you know, Warren Buffett, what's his deal? He like basically reads and thinks all the time and you know, good for yeah. you, Warren, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, but like for, the, for those of us here kind of in it a little bit more, like just carving out that one day, like if I'm not thinking, if I'm not kind of scribbling out stuff with my, my kids' pens on paper and, and kind of thinking about where we're going, or at least just servicing my inbox, sometimes that's what I do. You know what I mean? That's yeah. okay to keep the grass down. Then I'm, I'm not doing my job. So yeah, I don't know. I think we could probably overcome it without geography, but geography is a lovely little kind of boost to, to keep me where i yeah, need to be for sure i feel like everybody needs to be in a warren buffett mindset at least one day a week so it feels like you're uh you're, that's the goal you're, you're getting the balance right with that the other thing i was just going to ask about you know managing people across time zones and countries and everything else so you mentioned there about you've got new leaders and it's all about getting to know them and of course you can't go for a beer you don't have the water cooler you can't take them for lunch you know have you found have you found other other ways other than just being talking on a Zoom call in order to to get to know people? Are there other things that people can try if they're sort of in that kind of leadership working from home kind of mode right now? Yeah, I mean, we ran a full retreat online and it worked. You know, it didn't work as well as you know we didn't have the evenings together where we go like yeah. share ideas, but we ran one of our, our set piece retreats that we do every year. Um, online at the height of kind of pandemic misery in, in the UK where morale was totally bottomed out. And, 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 you know, we just did some little cheesy stuff, but that's okay. Sometimes, you know, just the little triggers. And I said, look, bring something to make your desk feel different, right. Or, or sort of different part of your house or, and so every day I'd be like, here's my like uh, diffuser. And I'd like pull up my little like essential oils diffuser. And I'd be like, today I'm doing rosemary and, you know, <laughs> thyme and, and, you know, whatever. And the reason I'm doing that is because it makes me feel happy and balanced. And, and, and it's almost like over the top shtick, right? But, yeah. but, but what we were doing is just kind of, you know, just showing the team and, and, and talking to my team and going, so what are you doing? And then they'd like do something fun. And, and we closed out that retreat with like drawing a house. When I said, looking to thank you for welcoming us into your house, you know, we've just run a retreat in your home and mm. that's invasive, right? That's massively invasive and, and let's, and it was all linked to where we're going to go. And so it was kind of a, a, a guided kind of prompt. We all drew houses and we, 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 we ended that way. And I, you know, everybody left and the blood pressure went down and we had the good thinking. And, and I think, you know, it was a little bit of an expert, but we learned that we could do it. Right. And, yeah. and and so I think carving out intentional space online is great. Obviously, turn the cameras off. You know, introverts and people who don't want to look at them their face all day long struggle with cameras. And and so giving people time to be off has been helpful. Um, but also just kind of I mean, one one of the other areas and I don't do as much now is is like Instagram. I mean, my my Instagram now is is mainly about my blog and kind of coaching stuff. Mm. And it's just kind of like, you know, you know, it's, it's not like my personal life, but it used to be all my personal life. Um, and and the, the point was to, to kind of connect and get to know people. And all of a sudden I've got volunteers and staff who I'm not going to meet because we're running up to 8,000 volunteers a year. I'm not going to meet all those folks. But if they know where to find me and they know what I'm about and they can kind of catch my voice on a, on a little clip yeah. here or there yeah. or see what my life's about, like that, that that's valid. You know, it, it, it doesn't replace everything and all the in-person, but I, Again, I think it's one of the things, I think if you choose to worry about it, you'll probably get it right. Uh, if you don't ask the question, yeah. you're, you're going to be in trouble. You know, if, if you just go, how do I connect with my new team member? You've, you've already got it. it. You know, and if yeah. you can't answer that, you're, you're probably in the wrong role, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And you said there about Instagram that it used to be about your personal stuff and then now it's much more about your blog and stuff. Do you think that was a conscious or even a subconscious thing to to offer a bit less of you? Like as a, as a CEO, do you think that's that's kind of shifted your thinking a bit? Not so much. Uh, not not so much. It, it, I, I'm actually going to kind of start to work more of me back in there because that content go, goes better. Um, <laughs> but you no, know, it was more just like I, I started a blog last year and I don't know anything about it, right? And mm. and I've always used Instagram just like for friends and, and and that kind of stuff. And and I've kind of I'm enjoying learning how this space works. I'm enjoying you know trying to add a bit of value above and beyond. I mean, it, it was really funny. Everybody Russell thought I was quitting when I launched the blog, and all of my sector colleagues thought I was starting a consultancy. 
And I was like, genuinely, friends, I'm like, I'm just trying to share. I'm just trying to share. I've got tons of privilege in my life. I'm lucky to be where mm-hmm. I am. And that's, you know, by background. And that's how I was educated. And I'm lucky, right? And and so, like, I'm just trying to give away free leadership lessons as I go. And, and you could just see people going, okay, you know, okay, okay. And they're like, oh, he's for real. He's not actually trying to sell me anything. And and, and um, I've enjoyed doing that. But I've, I've definitely learned, like, you know, I've made quite a few mistakes on social media and that kind of stuff. So it's it's more of an evolution and and actually what I'm finding now is I probably went too far to the content and, and not enough of the community and people. And so I'm, I'm trying to get back to that on social media. And, and as soon as you say it out loud, it's obvious, right? Because that's not how you lead in, in real life. You don't lead through content. You lead through community and relationships. And, yeah. and you get into social yeah. media and, and there's the tendency is to push all the stuff out there. But actually, people aren't coming for my content. They're coming because they trust me. Hopefully, yeah, right. right. Or at least yeah. they, or or they totally distrust me and won't argue, which is good too, right? But like, I, I think so. It's it's more of an evolution. Can we just can we just talk about the mistakes? So you said you made some mistakes on social media along the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I, I just like it's all self education, right? And and I, I went out and followed a bunch of kind of handles that are like you know how to grow your your Instagram and how to do. I, I've kind of given up on Twitter. I, I share on Twitter, but that's it. Doesn't make me happy. Um, and I think um, I've, I've me learned. Too. I don't spend any time on Twitter anymore. It's Goodness just, gracious. It's yeah. thrill. I, I don't know. It's Awful. just people shouting <laughs> angrily into a box. And so I've kind of enjoyed Instagram and, and LinkedIn, of course. And, and, and I think what the big mistake was just not understanding that it is social media, right? And, and, you know, you say it out loud and everybody says it, right? But I, I started mm. to follow kind of handles and they're like, this is how to do great posts. And so here I was doing like carousel posts, like these, these guys. And, and actually, like, that's not what my audience wanted. They don't want me, like, hammering, like, you know, kind of clickbait titles, like, five ways to build your leadership. That's mm. what I was doing. And, like, it was just like, that's not who you are, mate. You know what I mean? You're, you're a guy who has yeah. a chat like this. And I, and I think trying to, to, to come back and, and define the kind of real voice and, and not just to do kind of what the what you're supposed to do, but to kind of take that wisdom and go, cool, that's a good way to build engagement. I'll file that away, but let me make sure I do it in a, in a way that's true to me. I think that's the mistake. And the other mistake that I've made is trying to prioritize too many channels at once. And there's yeah. been a couple, there's been a couple of yeah. times where I've like really tried to work on Instagram, the quality of the blogs dropped. And it's like, no, what are you doing this for? You're doing this because of the blog. That's your like heart yeah. and soul. That's what you're trying to share. Instagram is a means by which to distribute or to engage. Um, and, and so that, that's been a good learning too. And, mm. you know, and trying not, and trying to do it so it doesn't kind of take over your life and you still switch off and go see the kids and you know because yeah. uh i've been talking to my wife and she's like you know social media is a it's a rabbit hole you know you want to do this really really well y- you can keep doing it till the nth degree and you can do this and you can you can start to do more stories and you can do more reels and you can do more posts and all of a sudden you're just like i'm not an influencer and that's the other thing that's not, right? that's not is, the gig you know what i mean like where's the day for sure ends? for sure and also like you know content is a thing that you can sort of control how much content you put out but community is is infinite right so that's the rabbit hole too is that you get sucked into community and um yeah i really relate to that whole thing about trying to do it with your own voice and um i struggled with that myself a lot for for years and years and then i ended up just having a very similar thought process to what you just described there of just thinking how can i make this okay for me right and so Mm. there's lots of stuff i don't like i don't really like selfies I don't really like uh, this whole sort of, uh, you know, portrait thing that people do where it's like them staring from a funny angle into the distance or whatever. And it's like, (laughs) you know, it just just feels really cringy and silly to me. But it's like, yeah, I'll put out the things that I want to say and I'll I'll do it in my way. So I ended up writing this blog post called A Marketing Manifesto for My Work. And just Mm. once I set the rules out for what I was comfortable with and what, what was a no go for me, like yeah. selfies and, you know, and all those things. And quoting myself was another thing. Like, you know, the quote posts where it's like, you know, people write, you know, uh, and it, and they're usually something really sort of banal as well. Right. It's like, uh, you know, <laughs> just... in order to move forward, you have to start by moving forward or something. And then it's just got like their name underneath. So I was like, I just, I don't, I just don't want to do that. So I just had little rules like that. I, I will quote you. Right. So there'll be, I'll pick out some things that you said in this interview and quote you on my Instagram, but I would never quote me. Like, I just think that's just like arrogant. And so uh, I figured I... out the rules and, and that, <laughs> then it was okay after that. Uh, we've got a few more minutes. And at the beginning, you said you've got a, uh, did you, did you call it a diaper center behind you? Yeah. Yeah. What's, well, the, what's um, the American? 
I'm, yeah, I'm trying to be transatlantic. Uh, but I've got my yeah, nappy changing. We've got the nappy changing, diaper changing table. The nappy um, changing station. Yeah. 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 Um, so it, it's good for big meetings, you know, when you're in a meeting and kind of the baby rolls in there and gets changed in the background. <laughs> People are like, whoa. And I'm like, well, this is yeah. a litmus test. Let's see what you're all about. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, but obviously, you know, doing a CEO role across time zones, you know, while, while also, um, you know, ha- having a baby in the family too. So just... Tell us your reflections on um, work-life balance and how do you make it all fit together? I basically prioritize two things in my life, family and work. And it's not to say the other stuff goes, but that, that I, I put that first. And, uh, you know, kids have a way of forcing to get off on time, you know, and, and, <laughs> and well, not even on time. I, I think the last year was just a massive exercise for everybody mm-hmm. and like, not just accepting the kids coming in the screen and interruptions, but accepting that we are real people and that, like my... My business director is, is going to be a business director, but sometimes she's, she's a mom. And, and like, sometimes those things interact and, 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 and learning how to, how to, you know, help her go be mom first. So you can come back and be business director. And yeah. I think those kind of conversations are really healthy. And it's, it's been so much fun to see that. I think in a lot of organizations over the last year, a little bit more acceptance of what's going on in the background. I mean, but for me, like, yeah, we, I just work, my wife and I, she's in the same boat. She's working uh, globally as well. And, and, um, and she's a COO for an exciting organization doing great work with farmers. And, and so we, you know, we, we don't chat shop very much. <laughs> we chat kids and, and go, cool. Who's got right. pickup? Who's got yeah. drop off? And you just schedule it. You know what I mean? And, and, and I think in a way, like children are excellent because they just force you to log off. You know, they, they, yeah. they come yeah. on and, and yeah, of course I have idle thoughts. And of course I think about work. Usually it's, it's things I'm excited about, um, while I, you know, I'm around, but, but really it's, it's kind of really zen because you just go get very physical really quick. And either we've mm. got crayons or more likely than not, I'm just chasing the one year old around and trying to catch him. Um, and, and that kind of physicality, well, it's replacing the gym. Um, you know, but, but the other thing I've done is I've just stopped a lot of other stuff and I've given myself permission to do mainly these two things for a couple of years. I mean, we've got a five-year-old and I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, right? I can see a little bit more balance and I might be able to have hobbies again and, you know, and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but we've got a one-year-old and, and, you know, it's just a, when you have a kid that young, you just, you got to give yourself permission not to do it all. And I mean, what I dropped was, I mean, I just basically my Xbox is collecting dust. Why? Because that was not a productive (laughs) hobby for me, right? I'd sit down to play, but I'd I'd play too late. I'd go to bed 11, not 10. You know, and, and that was good, but it's like, I can live without that. I, I quit my softball team in London. I mean, that was a bummer. I love the softball team, but like, I was like, I, I can't go half day Saturday and, and practice and, and a Thursday night and play and probably be a little bit hungover on a Friday morning. And I just can't do that anymore. That's like the net drain on my life is that's not worth it. And I, and I think just kind of recognizing life cycles and going, I'm, I'm in a stage here where my priorities are, are obviously my children, our, our children, yeah. our family, but just to go, that'll come back. That, that rich, <laughs> that rich life of, of, of kind of optional activities, that'll come back. And if it doesn't, well, I'm really happy where I am in the meantime, you know? And I, I think doing that and just kind of trying to enjoy the time and give yourself permission when it doesn't work. You know, I, you know, I'm lucky to work for a very flexible employer, but the kids get sick all the time and, and you just go, well, I got to down tools and I'll, I'll be mm. back and I'll put those hours in somewhere else. I mean, early in the pandemic, what I said to the, the team is I don't care what your hours are. I don't even, you know, like just don't even, don't even bother. I, I care about the outcomes. And if you're struggling to get yeah. to that level, then let me know. But you, you're, you're skilled people work at, you know, these people who are recording their staff at home and that's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, you know, nobody performs well like that. So I, I think try to kind of listen to what I'm telling my teams and practice a little bit of it myself and give myself permission just to, to go with the flow and, 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 you know, uh, yeah. it just evolve every day. And it's, it's, it is one of those things. It's like you do it and then you got to stop at some point and go, how's this working and, and what's working and what's not and turn that kind of learning loop. And, and I do that with my wife and we go, how are we doing? And, and then get back to work. And, and the fun thing is when you're in work, you're in work, you know, and, 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 you, and you sit down and you have to, I'm going to be here and I'm going to be properly here for X amount of time. And, and, and you, because you can't run long, you have to be more efficient within the day and, uh, that was, that was one of those things. I think, you know, it's, it's really interesting when people say, well, I might have to work on a Saturday. I think that messes up their whole week. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in working on the weekends because I think you give yourself that much time. I think you need to yeah. have a weekend to recharge. And I think, you know, oh, I might have to work late tonight. I'm like, no, why don't you say you're going to finish at six and see what happens, right? You might be way more ruthless during the day. And so I, I think it's kind of like ruthlessness and compassion. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's just what I was thinking there is that there's this, this is really nice mix in your approach, which is 
trust on the one hand and then real decisiveness on the other and and um i just think that's a it's a very in- inspiring approach to leadership and it's also i think just fundamental to work life balance like you've just got to be really clear about what's in and what's out you know yeah, for periods of time yeah. and um i just think that make, makes so much sense and um, we're pretty much um at the hour mark so i'd love people to connect with you and find out more about restless development and read some of your blogs so um do you want to just um as we finish just let people know where they can find you and um just point people to to what you want to point them towards i would love to well i mean look if you want to check out restless please check out um restlessdevelopment.org uh that's our website but we've got a great blog we are restless um so check that one out that's young leaders around the world um and uh my stuff is all under the banner of just open leaders um so it's uh justopenleaders.com check it out there's a blog there and i'm i'm perry maddox on all the platforms so you can hunt me down i'm the perry maddox of the beard um and uh yeah I, you know please please do reach out on on linkedin and uh, on insta because I'd, I'd love to be as help helpful as I can to anybody who's listening. Perry, it's been amazing having you on Beyond Busy and we'll put all the links to all that stuff um, in the show notes as well so people can connect with you that way at at getbeyondbusy.com. But uh, thanks for hanging out today. Oh, thanks, Graham. I mean, it's such a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. So there you go, Perry Maddox. And as we said during the conversation, I have my own experiences of volunteering, travelling away with Restless Development as it is now and SPW as it was then. And just want to give a shout out to all the people who I've met through my time uh, in Uganda and with uh, SPW, the SPEW crew, as we often refer to ourselves. And it's uh, such a a talented and diverse group of people who, you know, honestly, just based in different continents around the world and, you know, people who I would never have met if it wasn't for the work of Restless Development. So just want to give a huge shout out to, uh, well, you all know who you are, but uh, to all those people that uh, I've met through uh, that incredible organization. And yeah, it's honestly one of those experiences as well, where I look back on what that stuff teaches you, right? So just going out to another country, just being kind of thrown in at the deep end in many ways uh, to just make stuff happen and get stuff done. And um, yeah, it really was uh, a very fundamental uh, part of my own uh, journey and kind of figuring out what I wanted to do in my career, who I was as a as a person, as a leader and all that stuff. So uh, shout out to everybody working with Restless Development and everything that they do. Um, also, thanks to Pavel and to Emily for your help with bringing all this together as always. And we are sponsored by Think Productive. So head to thinkproductive.com if you want to uh help us to help you we can come in and help your team to do their best work and make space for what matters and uh, if you want to find out more just head to thinkproductive.com and you can also just drop me a line it's graham at thinkproductive.co.uk we'd love to answer your questions about what it is that think productive does uh, and also just if there's anything else that you want to share with me if you've got potential uh guests that you have in mind for this show uh or anything else you want to share about the podcast just drop me an email. I just I love getting emails from from readers of the book and listeners to the podcast. So it's just graham at thinkproductive.co.uk if you want to drop me an email. And if you're not signed up to Rev Up for the Week, which is my weekly email, we just passed a thousand subscribers. Very excited about that. So if you just go to grahamalcott.com forward slash links, you can join the thousand plus people who every Sunday get an email from me. And in that email is one productive or positive idea for the week ahead. And uh, it's a pleasure to do it. I've really enjoyed doing it over the last year and a half or so. And not least because as well as having a kind of regular practice and a regular writing deadline, um, it's really helped me to connect with lots of the listeners to this podcast and lots of people who are reading my stuff on a regular basis. So uh, if that sounds like fun, just head to graymalcott.com forward slash links not spammy i don't sell your email address like none of that rubbish stuff it's just a once a week email that just keeps you informed of what i'm doing and what i'm thinking and uh the important thing my only criteria every week is that it is helpful so if you want to be part of that grahamalcott.com forward slash links we're gonna be back in another week with another episode oh yeah one other thing just thank you if you've bought how to fix meetings 
Um, I booked with Hayley Watts. Uh, yeah, we've just had a really great time with that over the last few weeks with people just giving us some really nice feedback and Amazon reviews coming in and it's sold pretty well. So we're really happy with that. If you haven't bought it, it's called How to Fix Meetings. And uh, if you have bought it, thank you. Really appreciate it and keep the feedback coming in. See you next week. Take care. Bye for now.